The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. Gary Cohn was an insider at two of America's most mysterious and powerful organizations, Goldman Sachs and the White House. He stopped by Times Square, New York, to chat with our Breaking Views columnist, Gina Chon, and showed off some of that fighting spirit that made him so at home in Washington, D.C. Good evening. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I have a piece of paper. I think it was on my desk. (laughs) Gary. No, no, I don't. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I've got a piece of paper here. Good evening. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. Um, That was an icebreaker, they call it. Um, So I just want you all to remember uh, where you were on this Monday evening 10 years ago. I did a quick look back at the archive of Breaking Views from that day last night to refresh myself, and I can tell you I needed a stiff drink afterwards. Uh, Those were pretty harrowing times for anyone uh, even remotely uh, watching the financial markets, Uh, but the fallout on the real economy that that we saw over the the ensuing few months and year was, was far worse. Reliving the 2008 crisis is no fun, but forgetting it would be a dangerous thing to do. Revisiting what happened after Lehman's went bust rekindles, I don't know if you all had that, that awful sinking feeling that the world was kind of, was turning over. Uh, But it should also focus our minds on the lessons that we hopefully have learned uh, over the past 10 years. And it should humble us. It should act as a reminder about what we really don't know is going to happen, what we don't really know uh, where the next crisis will come from. But we we can do one thing. We can be pretty sure that it will involve an excess of confidence on the part of investors, regulators, bankers, policymakers, legislators, and possibly even journalists. Gary may be in the headlines today for his stint as President Trump's chief economic advisor, and he definitely is in the headlines these days. (laughs) But in many respects, Gary earned his spurs in the trenches at Goldman Sachs during, during the crisis. Um, and I would not be the first to suggest uh, there is an unbroken line between the events of, that unfolded in 2008 and the state of our politics today. I, not just our politics, not just here in the United States, but across the world. So without further ado, uh, allow me to pass the mic on to Breaking Views DC columnist Gina Chon, a superior journalist who has covered both <laughs> Wall Street and Washington and can pull these two strands together in conversation with Gary. And one housekeeping note, we um, are not going to open this to audience questions, but you will have an opportunity to lodge your questions uh, to us using um, the, following the instructions in the bio page that, is, um, that you're probably sitting on and don't realize it. So over to you, Gina and Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, so you can see we have a pretty uh, packed house and we have a lot to get to, so we'll uh, get started. Um, so 
given it's the 10-year anniversary of the crisis, there's a lot of you know hindsight. It's 2020, sort of looking back. Um, given uh, one, the positions that Goldman Sachs took um, at that time, where it was actually one of the few banks that actually uh, could see some of this coming, you feel like the crisis actually was predictable. That you know this was something that you know. The, all the ingredients were actually in place uh, for someone to see this coming, including those in Washington. But first, Gene and Rob, thank you. Thank you for having me. Look, when you say was the crisis predictable, I'll, I'll answer no, but then I'll back up and say I think there was enough evidence to know something different was going on. And when I say to know something different was going on, I, I remember vividly, literally people that worked for me who had refinanced their mortgages so many times that they hadn't closed on three financings because they hadn't just got to the paperwork. So they had the, the, either the equity value of their house had gone up because a house next to them sold for more money or interest rates had gone down. And because we had removed all of the friction costs of a mortgage, they had taken more money out of their house or lowered their payments because interest rates had gone down. And I don't think anyone ever stopped to think about what that meant for the mortgage market. When I, and maybe many of you in this audience, I'm looking at your age, got your first mortgage, you needed a 200 basis point move in interest rates for it to make sense for you to refinance your mortgage. Now we're sitting in 2007 and the friction cost has gone to zero. And what did that mean for banks? What did it mean for financial institutions? What did it mean for securitized paper? No one had really understood the magnitude of that. We might have understood it was different, but we surely didn't understand the magnitude. So looking back at that time, and especially um, looking back on these dates today and uh, the few days preceding. So September 17th, 10 years ago, uh, the SEC announced their emergency ban on short selling of financial stocks. Um, just before that was uh, the AIG yep. bailout. Uh, just before that was Lehman and um, B of A announcing their Merrill deal. Um, I'm sure there is a lot of therapy that went around uh, surrounding those events. Um, what were the scariest moments for you? What was going through your head at that time as you could see it coming, you know, creeping closer and closer to, you know, possibly hurting Goldman? Well, remember, those were that that September 15th weekend was the weekend that we all pointed. That was not the real weekend. I mean, that was that was the weekend we all pointed, but there was a lot going on before that. We had January where countrywide basically had to be saved by Bank of America. We had Bear Stearns in March and the government bailing out and, and, and doing the, 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 the bailout of Bear Stearns. Um, we had a bunch of things going on in July. We had a couple of things going on. So, you know, we were leading up to the September event. The September weekend was really the lack of liquidity and the inability for Lehman Brothers to finance themselves um, Lehman Brothers gets the headlines. They really don't deserve them. AIG really deserves the headlines. I think if it was a Lehman Brother only event of that weekend, we'd have a different story. 
But, you know, sitting in the room, sitting in the big conference room on the first floor of the New York Fed with all of the heads of all the banks talking about Lehman Brothers, which was, let's call it a $30 billion problem. We could have solved a $30 billion problem. But everyone kept saying every time we got close to solving the $30 billion problem, well, what about the $100-plus billion problem over there, AIG? There's no sense with the financial institutions sitting in this room solving the $30 billion problem if you got a $100 billion-plus problem sitting next door to this. And so in many respects, Lehman Brothers was a victim of the bigger problem right behind it. But did you uh, agree with the government's decision to to not bail out Lehman? Well, look, this is this is very difficult, and I can answer that question two ways. Did I agree with it then, and do I agree with it today? And I might have a different answer, having yeah. been in the government now for 440 <laughs> days and understanding what $30 billion is, you know, in government terms. You know, when we when we got within $30 billion of balancing the new tax plan, we, we were done. Like, $30 billion is nothing. <laughs> So, you know, thinking you had a $30 billion problem, that, was, that, that would have been nothing. You know, at the time, the biggest single problem I think we had as an industry in the United States was we didn't understand what the operating rules were, and we didn't understand the consistency. So, like I said, Bear Stearns, yep. they got a facility. So the government, basically the Fed, it wasn't the government, the Fed basically gave them financing for their balance sheet. Had Lehman Brothers got the same treatment, Lehman Brothers would be here today, and those assets would have repaid, because we know what happened to those assets in the recovery. They didn't get the same treatment. No one knew what was going to happen to AIG. So look, part of me said, we just want to understand the rules. So being in the business at the time, and, 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 I, and by the way, let me back up and flip it. Had we allowed Bear Stearns to go under, I think Lehman Brothers might not have happened because Lehman might have said, look, there's no government backstop. There's no facility. We have to go out and raise capital, and we have to go out and raise financing. But maybe Lehman Brothers said, look, Bear Stearns got a bailout, so maybe we're going to get a bailout. So the fact that the government was inconsistent in sending confusing messages at the time confused everyone in the process. My fundamental view at the time was pretty simple. Every company should stand on their own two feet. The taxpayer should not be liable. And if a company can't exist, they should fail. And we would have been better off to let Bear Stearns fail than Lehman Brothers fail, and better off to let Lehman Brothers fail than the next bank, whoever he or she may be. What if that was Goldman, though? It, it, it may have been. Yeah. It just may have been. But look, that would have been pure capital markets, it would have been pure market environment. You know, I, I, I can go into the Goldman story where we were the only financial institution to go out and raise capital. We went out and we did a deal with Warren Buffett for $5 billion. We went out to the capital markets and raised an additional $5 billion. So we raised, we raised $10 billion of additional capital, you know, weeks before we were getting another $10 billion of TARP. So in addition to the TARP, we had raised an additional $10 billion of capital. So, you know, I think that what was confusing is banks didn't know, am I supposed to raise capital? Am I supposed to stand on my own two feet? Or am I supposed to wait for some type of government intervention? Yeah. Well, so before Goldman got the Warren Buffett money, there were also, and this is across the industry, a bunch of different deals percolating, you know, crazy combinations that are hard to imagine at this time. You know, what 
was what's true and what's not in terms of all those iterations. I mean, there was Goldman possibly buying AIG, Goldman merging with Citi, Goldman merging with Wachovia. Yep. You know, was, was all of that on the table? To some degree, every one of those was on the table. Um, the only one that really got traction was Wachovia. So we were told to call Citigroup and buy Citigroup. Never really, when we called, we got, what are you talking about? That was a five minute conversation. Um, yeah, I think Vikram was not too happy either, no, right? Vikram was not very happy at all. Yeah. That, was a, that was a five minute conversation. I don't, you know, it was one of those things, well, we were told to call by someone who was supposed to know um, in Washington, and that conversation was over. Um, the Wachovia conversation, which I was leading for the firm, went a pretty long way down in a very short period of time. We had a, in essence, deal. Uh, but again, we had this big pool of take-or-pay mortgages that no one wanted or no one really knew how to value, and we were looking for a little bit of Fed support, and the Fed was unwilling or unable, no one will know, to get involved. So that deal fell apart relatively quickly, even though we had, I would say, everything else agreed to except for that single asset on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. um, and so that combination had gotten some traction. The AIG discussions never really got traction because um, there, there was no understanding what the AIG balance sheet really looked like in a mark-to-market environment. Yeah, so you didn't want to touch it. Right. Yeah. And you were dealing a lot with clients as well at that time, um, you know, just trying to calm them down, keep them with the bank. Um, you know, I think it's sort of well known, Stanley Drug and Miller pulled his money, Steve Cohen uh, did not, and I think that was, you know, something that you and others at Goldman valued. What did, you know, besides the crisis lessons about, you know, risk taking and liquidity versus solvency and all those kinds of things, I mean, some of those personal things, what did that teach you about, you know, what people are made of, how, how you sort of react in, in those emergency situations about loyalty, yep. frankly? Well, look, financial markets are based on rational behavior. And what I was trying to instill in everyone that worked for me and everyone who was a client is, look, try and be as rational as you can be. The more rational we all are, the better this will work out for everyone. So trade, execute your business. If you spread your business to 10 brokers, spread your business to 10 brokers. It's not going to help for you to pull your business from all nine and trade with one who you think, who you're willing to think or guess may be the most solvent because the other nine need to stay in business and the system needs to work and you never want to concentrate your risk in the one because you know what, even though they look the most solvent today, they may not be. So if everyone acts rationally and everyone leaves their money and everyone leaves the system intact, we as managers and we as risk managers, and I, I consider myself a risk manager, we can make rational decisions. If I'm thinking of the unintended consequences, which we were at this time, what happens if everyone pulls their prime brokerage balances? What happens if everyone pulls their deposits, if you're a deposit-taking institution? What happens if no one re renews their CDs? You have to think like that. You're now spending more and more of your time thinking about the unintended consequences or irrational behavior than rational behavior. So the clients that were 
thinking rationally, we're actually helping the system settle down. And that was my point. We wanted clients to be as rational as they could be in a period of time where they were under stress too. Like, I understand they were getting calls from their LPs and saying, look, where's your money? What's going on? You know, we've got money tied up at Lehman Brothers. We don't know if we're ever going to see it or not. And, 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 and look, the key to success and the key to unwinding anything in, in these type of irrational moments is to try and be as, as rational as you can be. But did it matter to you personally? Did you remember, you know, who, who stayed with the bank and who uh, didn't? Of course you remember. Yeah. You, know, you remember who your friends are. Yeah. And, 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 and like in human nature, you know who your really good friends are in troubling <laughs> times. Yeah. You know, who comes to console you when you're having a real tough day? When you're having a great day, everyone's your friend. Mm -hmm. When you're having a tough day, who's your friend? So look, you remember these things, yeah. but, that, but that's, that's your life and that's everyone's life in this room. Yeah. Well, so going to then the uh, post-crisis response, um, especially because now you have had time in Washington, you've seen how the sausage is made. Do you have any more sympathy for Dodd-Frank at all in terms of the way that came out um, and how hard it is to actually get Congress to pass anything, well, much less a you bill say, like do that? Have any more sympathy? Well. Um, I, I assume that you have a lot of problems with, with Dodd-Frank. So, so. so let, let, let's back up, because I, I want to characterize it in the right fashion. Mm -hmm. This may be shocking to people in here. A lot of what's in Dodd-Frank is not bad. I mean, a lot of the core fundamentals of what's in there, as far as capital, liquidity, stress test, um, these things are fundamentally not bad. The question is, who should be affected by them? Should we throw the baby out with the bathwater? The one thing that Dodd-Frank clearly did is threw the baby out with the bathwater. They said, if, you've got, if you're a bank, we're just going to treat you as an evil empire. I mean, that, that was literally the first premise. And you think about the destruction of over 1,900 banks in the United States in, in, in the last eight years and the fact that we've had 12 new banks created where if you look back pre-crisis, we were having you know, 170, 180 new banks a year created. Well, what they did with Dodd-Frank is they made the rules so arduous, so restrictive, and so costly that they actually had the complete unintended consequences is they made the bigger banks bigger because no one else could afford the rules and regulations. And then you throw in like the, the midterm election crisis calamity of the Democrats having a bad midterm election and then coming up with the Volcker rule and naming it after Volcker and him not even knowing what it is and no one knowing what it is on um, proprietary trading when 98% of the losses in banks was on loan and loan origination had nothing to do with trading. That, that part of it made no sense to me. But look, I do believe that deleveraging banks made enormous amount of sense. I do believe that having banks raising long-term capital makes sense. I do believe that banks being stressed and having stress tests does make sense. Should it be a lot more transparent than it is today? Yes, it should be outside of a black box. And, and look, the Fed governors that we put in recently think that way as well. So they're going to become more and more transparent on it. So I, I definitely do want to get to the Fed in a moment. But so the banks are bigger, um, partly because of some of the deals as well that, that were uh, done in that in the crisis period. So what do you think about, uh, especially on the left, um, this pronouncement that we, we haven't ended too big to fail? And 
you know, some of your colleagues should have gone to jail at that time, that no one was held accountable for, so, um, for the crisis. We haven't ended too big to fail. We've created too, we, we've created too big. We've made rules and regulations that make the bigger bigger. Congratulations to the left. <laughs> they have actually created legislation that says you have to be big to survive. As I said, I think it's 1,914 banks from 2009 to 2017, those are the FDI stats, have gone out of business. 12 have been created, and I could go through the 12. One's an Amish bank, so the drive-through windows are at buggy height. One's on a res I mean, there are literally 12 have been created for specific reasons. No one's opened a bank just to open a bank. Yeah. I mean, we laugh, but that, that, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. On your second question, what laws were broken? Well, people lost their homes. People, you know, the banks took all the, these laws, risks. What laws were broken? Well, that, that's what I'm asking you. No, I'm that's, asking yeah. you. You said no one went to. You said no one. You said no one was indicted. I thought the U.S. criminal system worked well, that you had to break a law. I didn't think you could be indicted for just because someone didn't like what you did. Well, I guess it's you know is is being. In some, in some cases, reckless or stupid. You no, know, who was reckless and stupid? Like, was the waitress in, in Las Vegas who had six houses leveraged at 100% with no income? Was she reckless and stupid or was the banker reckless and stupid? Well, I'm, not, think, I'm, not, I'm not defending either, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying the banker should have done more due diligence. Or was the appraiser that appraised the house at the last sale, because the last hail, sale took, took place at 50% more than the prior sale, and he appraised everything at that sale. Who broke the law? I just want to know who you think broke the law. No, I know. But you can understand <laughs> you know, people's anger about you know, Dick Fold or, or any of the others. Who, Again. You know, whether can, they were maybe misleading investors, because the way they were, you know, marking some of these loans and whether did they were Fold, off book or on Did Dick on Fold book. not have his entire net worth wiped out? Yeah, no, he, okay. he definitely so did, lost, who, but... Who was Dick Fold defrauding? Himself. Dick well, Fold... And so, so look, again, I love, this, I love this question that you and the media love to ask. <laughs> I love, I love the 10-page supplement in the New York Times this week when you got the number 10 and it was a blank page. I would love someone to answer <laughs> what laws were broken. Oh, but you understand people's anger. Right? I love yeah. the justice system in this country. It's one of our biggest competitive advantages that we have one of the most robust legal systems in the world. So tell me what laws were broken. Well, you know, maybe misleading investors and... So yeah. that would be an SEC enforcement action. Yeah. Um, it would be civil. And, but, and yeah. so it would be civil. And again, I don't know where you would say they were misled because the banks were marked to market. The banks had their margin. The banks had their security. Again, I don't know what law was broken. So do you see the translation from that period to, you know, the growing populism that we've seen in this country, and and obviously, you know, President Trump was elected on, so, you know, some residual anger. So, look, absolutely, dude. But this is a broader topic than sure. just the financial yeah. crisis. So I'll I'll say something that, that will be a little surprising. So, look, I understand the Occupy Wall Street movement. Like, if I were, <laughs> I, if I were a young kid. In, in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, worked my butt off, went, got good grades in high school, went to a good college, borrowed all the money to get a 
degree from a college, came out with $200,000 of debt and couldn't get a job, I'd be angry. I'd be really angry. I understand that. I understand what the anger is all about. So it's not like I'm naive to that. And I don't think there's anyone on Wall Street or anyone in the, in, in the community that's, that, that doesn't understand that. That's a much bigger socioeconomic question in the United States today. Should our measure of success be sending people to college? Or should it be, are you self-sustaining five years out of high school? Look, we have more job openings in the United States today than we have unemployed people. Yeah. We have $78,000 a year starting jobs in the construction industry that no one will apply for. You can take those jobs with a high school diploma. You'll be a self-sustaining individual long before you graduate college today, but no one seems to want those because we've got this whole stigma that you've got to go to college. So it's a much different question than the financial crisis. Yeah, well, so let's talk about some of those issues because that sort of also brings us um, to the Trump administration because worker training and um, how to sort of get people into those jobs is obviously one of the focuses. Um, you came on board uh, as the chief economic advisor to the president. Um, obviously, I think tax cuts were seen as... Um, the biggest task uh, that you had on hand. How important was it to you? I mean, seeing sort of the post-crisis period where uh, unemployment uh, is going down, but wa wages, wages are still yep. stagnant, there's mm -hmm. low productivity, you know, the, the GDP growth is not uh, as fast as people had thought it could be, given uh, where unemployment was. You know, how important did you see the tax cuts in that scenario? And also, what do you think of the criticisms now that it will just increase inequality, the, most of the breaks went to corporations or pass-throughs or thank, wealthy thank individuals? Thank you so much for asking that question. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love you. You're, okay, okay so, you're so, not being facetious there. No, okay. I, I do love you for the question. So, so first of all, when you talk about the economic recovery, it was one of the reasons, probably the, the number one reason I went to the Trump administration, having watched the economic recovery or the slowness or lack of economic recovery. I remember very clearly in 2010, 2011, people talked about the recovery in two terms. What inning are we in? And they always use baseball because you can go extra innings. So you can always say you're in the eighth inning because the game can go 16. Or what letter of the alphabet was the recovery? We have a U-shaped recovery. We have a V. You remember this, yeah, V-shaped yeah. recovery. Mm -hmm. And everyone's talking about U or V. No one talked about an L-shaped recovery. We had an L-shaped recovery. And I think we had that for two primary reasons. The United States was overregulated, and the United States was overtaxed. And when you think about that, what did that mean? That meant if the world were growing and you wanted to grow and expand your business, why would you expand in a country where you started out at a 13 or 14 percent corporate tax disadvantage? United States, 35% corporate tax, the OECD, 21, 22, and you can go to nine if you want in Ireland, and I can get you lower than nine if you want to, if you want to create some SPV vehicles around the world. I can get you lower than nine. Why would you build a company? Why would you manufacture in the United States when you can do the tax arbitrage right out of the box and save 13, 14%? Why would you build in the United States when you have this highly regulated environment here? So I thought that regulation and I thought that the tax rates were really styming the growth. And the reason we didn't have a U or a V-shaped 
recovery, and we had an L-shaped recovery, were those two core principles. And I thought that we needed to get competitive with the rest of the world. The tax rate was clearly one, and deregulation was clearly another. We started down the deregulation agenda. We've done a lot. We've got a lot of the small banks out of regulation. So if you're now a, a, a medium to small bank, you don't have all of the Dodd-Frank regulation. We got rid of that. We, it took us almost a year, but we've gotten rid of a lot of that regulation. We now have taxes to a point now where we're globally competitive at 21%. And on top of that, we've taken where you can spend capital, CapEx, for the next five years and take 100% deduction, which is what we're trying to do to drive job creation, hiring, and wage growth back to the United States and make us competitive with the rest of the world. On the stock market issue, which is why I really loved you for asking the question, <laughs> this is the most interesting discussion we ever have. So when you talk about the global financial crisis, it's amazing how many individual investors got hurt and had their wealth wiped out because the stock market went down. And by the way, I think that's 100% true. I agree with that. You know, the day the TARP didn't go through, we had our largest single day ever. I think it was September 19th or something. Stock market down 770 points. We wipe out investors' money. And we hurt investors. We hurt individuals. The largest single class of shareholders in the United States are municipal employees. Policemen, firemen, and teachers. They are the largest class of shareholders in the United States. It is absolutely mind-boggling to me that in the tax cuts, that when we did good things for companies and we lowered corporate tax rates, and that when we allowed companies to repatriate money back to the United States to create jobs and wage growth, we were only helping millionaires and billionaires. Yeah, but the individual, uh, yeah, but, okay. the individual tax rates yeah, but, are, okay. I mean, are not you, permanent. You, you can have it one way. No, I'm talking about the corporate side. Which way would you like it? Were we hurting investors or were we helping millionaires and billionaires? Because no, on the downside, we could have only been hurting millionaires and billionaires. I'm not saying it's a zero-sum game, but it was seen as it is a, it is were, a zero-sum game. Well, that you gave the corporations though a permanent tax cut and the individuals because the temporary. Democrats wouldn't vote with us to give the permanency of the tax cuts to individuals. You are right. The Democrats refuse to give individual permanent tax cut. We are trying. The, the administration right now is trying to make the individual tax cuts permanent. So, what are your uh, what's your response to people who say it does increase inequality, though? Because even on the individual rates, if you do the math, the people in like the lower, let's say, two income brackets or three income brackets don't get as much okay. of a bump. I'm, I'm loving you. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to hear okay. your because th right. these are the arguments I hear from Elizabeth Warren and all the five, others. So the five quintiles of brackets in the United States: federal income tax, first lower twenty percent pays minus 7.4%. You okay with that? Well, next 20, these, these are facts. Are not, wait, wait. These are, are facts. Not that, next, numbers. next 20% pays minus 14.3% federal income tax. Okay? First 40% were at negative tax rates. Next 20% pays around 4%. Next 20% pays 17. The top 20% pays 28%. Those are the breakdowns of federal income tax in the United States. I don't know how to give a break to someone at minus 14 without giving them more money back. So yes, when I cut tax rates, I can only cut to people pay, unless you have some modern math that I haven't seen yet. 
<laughs> so you you feel like that was the best deal and a, a good deal for. So, so here's the rea here's the reality of what I would have chosen to do. Mm -hmm. I would have rather have just cut corporate taxes, not touch personal taxes at all. Okay. Really? That would that would have. And by the way, the president was there too. The president would have just done corporate taxes and not touch personal taxes. In fact, he was willing to raise the high end of personal taxes. I mean, there were times when he was talking about 44, 6, 40, 49 in, in, in the personal side. We, have a, uh, we don't have a problem. We have a reality in this country that the vast majority of businesses in this country file on what's called a pass-through form. They file on an LLC, a subchapter S, a DBA. The, 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 the pass-through income tax filing, you file a Schedule C, is based off the personal rate. So if we had lowered the corporate rate and not lowered the personal rate, the spread between where C corporations were paying and pass-throughs would have widened too much. So we were at 39.6 and 35, we were at 4.6%. We People could live with a 4.6% spread. But had we gone to 15 and 39.6, or 21 and 39.6, people couldn't live with an 18% spread. And this was Ron Johnson's big issue at the end. At the end, we had to do more for the pass-through pass payers yeah. to get Ron Johnson's vote and get some other voters. Because look, the vast majority of people that are hired in this country are hired in pass-through entities today. And so we, we were forced into dealing with the personal income tax rates. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, going on to uh, some other things um, in the Trump administration and how they've affected the economy, um, obviously want to get to trade and tariffs, but I want to relate it because this is about the crisis uh, and its aftermath. Um, given the global tensions now, between the United States and uh, our allies, uh, our biggest trading partners. Um, just before uh, we came on, I was on a briefing call about the next uh, $200 billion tranche of uh, tariffs that are going to hit. Uh, what do you, how do you think that would affect global cooperation if there was a crisis now? Because back in 2008, China was actually pretty constructive. We had. Uh, Japan, Korea, um, Europe, all, you know, there was a lot of cooperation actually at that time, whether it was through the central banks or through the governments. Do you think that spirit would actually exist today? I, I do. I, I mean, really? I know that sounds, <laughs> I, I, I know that doesn't sound like it's realistic, but remember the finance ministers and central bankers, they spend a lot of time together during the course of the year. There's a lot of meetings where they're meeting all over the world for a variety of different topics, whether it's Basel Committee, whether it's IMF, World Bank, G7, G8, they have a lot of meetings together. The ministers and the central bankers talk about crises all the time. And remember, the financial institutions are intertwined with each other. You know, there's a Citibank in every country in the world, there's a JP Morgan in every bank, there's a Japanese bank in everywhere, there's, a, there's Chinese banks everywhere. And I think the central banks, the finance ministers, understand the interconnectedness of the financial system and the financial sector. I do think that people would put aside the trade tensions to understand the magnitude of a financial crisis if it happened. 
And I think we would work things out. Look, it's not as obvious as it was in 2008. I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But even today, when you talk about living wills and the fact that banks file living wills, the regulators are coordinating among themselves from Hong Kong to Tokyo to the European Union, to Canada, to the United States to say, yes, we will liquidate these companies in these following orders. We will follow these rules. You'll follow our living wills. We'll follow your living wills and we will coordinate with each other. So I think the regulatory community, the central bank community thinks of themselves in that very independent stream. Do you think on, on the government side though, I mean, I know you said they, you know, they talk all the time, but at that time, Hank Paulson was talking to his counterparts in China, I don't know if, you know, if Secretary Mnuchin tried to have the same conversations, if he would get that kind of reception I, I, anymore. I think he does. I, I, I'm pretty sure he does get yeah. that reception on financial matters, on matters of stability, on matters of financial stability. You know, look, the, 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 the governments are able to segment these issues. Well, it, it, it's no different than when we've got a, a militaristic situation going on. You know, we can get together with countries that we're having economic dialogue or trade discussion with and all of a sudden agree on a military activity somewhere where it's in the best interest of everyone. So there are behind the scene dialogues that go very well because we still do have a commonality of interest. Well, so speaking of trade, um, <laughs> Rob alluded to it earlier um, as a joke, but I do seriously wanna obviously ask you about uh, trade in relation to what has come up in the Bob Woodward book, because um, I think a lot and of how people- does, How does this affect the 2008 financial crisis? <laughs> well, the post-crisis <laughs> post economy is uh, definitely uh, in the cards where uh, trade could undo uh, a lot of, or well, the trade tensions could undo a lot of the uh, the advancements from that time. But obviously the famous story that was made the rounds is you supposedly taking a letter off of the president's desk that was uh, going to withdraw from the South Korean trade agreement. Can you talk about whether that's accurate and whether you felt like you had to make some sort of unorthodox moves because your priority was to keep the economy going. I, I've said what I'm going to say on, on the Woodward book. I really have. You know, you know, but did you did you have to make any unorthodox moves though? Maybe not talking about the letter, but just I've said what in I, general. I, I, I've said what I'm going to say on the Woodward book. Okay. Did you ever? But have I can to, keep saying that to you. I'm very good at repeating it. Did you ever have to take a letter off of Lloyd's desk? You want to say? You, you didn't I, have to do that. All right. Um, well, so speaking of the crisis, what, how do you think the Trump administration would react now if, if there was a crisis? Just given in 2008 how unpopular some of those decisions were that the George Bush administration had to make, both on the policy side, but also, I mean, as he said, the first vote for TARP failed. And I don't know if you know, given the Congress now, if if they would even care anymore about a 777 point drop in the Dow um, because things are so partisan and so contentious and, and has gotten even more negative about bailouts. Look, it depends what the crisis is. I mean, that, that's the reality. You know, the one good thing we're all good at is preventing the last crisis. So 
we probably won't have that type of crisis. But to the extent we have some type of seismic crisis, and it's very local, and it affects politicians, and it affects them getting reelected, Washington will react to that. To the extent they think it has no political ramifications for them, they'll stand back and, and they'll let it happen. And, and look, that's the value decision that politicians tend to make. How does this personally affect me? Because all politics is local. At the end of the day, I have to win re-election. But do you think the president himself would you know, be open to making some of these so, unpopular decisions? So look, here's, what the, here's how the president would look at it. The president looks at these economic decisions in a very simple lens. I want to grow the U.S. economy. I want to create jobs. I want to create wage growth. What do I have to do to grow the economy, create jobs, and create wage growth? If the federal government can do something that helps me accomplish those three things, he will be 100% inclined to do it. I mean, that's literally how he looks at it. So when he looks at infrastructure, he loves infrastructure because he believes it helps to create economic growth, it helps to create jobs, it helps to create wage growth. So he would look at a crisis in the same fashion he would look at everything else from an economic standpoint. How does it affect jobs and job creation and wages? So if he had to make some tough calls then, if it met those criteria. Yeah, I think that's his criteria. That is his, his domestic lens. His domestic lens is the president surely feels that he was elected to fill in the missing blank in the recovery, which is domestic jobs, and domestic wage growth and raise standard of living across the United States. So if a crisis was having a negative impact on that, he would step in. And if he could turn it the negative to a positive, he would clearly use the government's balance sheet to do that. Now, as you and I both know, there's a lot of hindrances and restrictions that Congress put in that doesn't make it as easy to do that today. Well, I, I wanted to get to that. and talk about the Fed um, in terms of the economy and how uh, the president also sees uh, the central bank. Um, he talked about uh, recently you know, saying, frankly, that the Fed should be helping out the government um, as opposed to you know, being sort of an independent decision maker. He seemed to uh, be upset that they are raising rates and feels like they should be keeping interest rates low, especially because of these, uh, the tariff situation and the trade deals that he's talking about. So what do you think about the president's comments in terms of you know, possibly infringing on uh, the Fed's independence? So the Fed, like many, many other agencies in the government, many other, is an independent agency. And remember, those independent agencies, the, the governors or the, or the board members or whoever they are, they're different in every agency, are advised by the president and consented on by the Senate. The Senate is in the personnel business. They spend a lot of time consenting on people. Once they get consented on and once they are sworn in, they take an oath of office to do their job as an independent agency. I am 100% confident that the Fed, as well as all of the other independent agencies, look at their job in a very independent fashion. They understand what their objective is. They understand what they're supposed to do. They understand how to do it. And they're going to do it in that fashion. And, and they block out a lot of the noise. Look, 
independent agencies over the history of this country have been criticized by everyone at some point. They've been criticized by the media, they've been criticized by foreign governments, they've been criticized by Senate, they've been criticized by, by Congress, they've been criticized by governors. They're, they're sort of used to it. That's part of the job description, is that someone's gonna be unhappy at some point. Do you feel like it's appropriate for the president to be saying those kinds of things about the Fed, just given, especially you know, recent history, I think, presidents have tried to refrain from really saying what the Fed should be doing. I, I think the president has made great choices in his Fed governors. <laughs> mm -hmm. I really do. I was involved with him in making the choices, and I think he should rely upon them to make the right decisions. I think he has confidence in them. Yeah. Well, so y you were part of that decision making and, you know, possibly a candidate yourself at one point uh, for that. This, the current Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell also doesn't have maybe a conventional resume of a Fed Chair. The past few have been, you know, mainly academics, and they've all been economists for the large part. Um, do you think that's an important uh, criteria for the Fed Chair, or or no? Because Powell is I, I really in don't. That seat. I, when you think of the role of the Fed today, especially a post-crisis Fed, bring it back to the topic and the roles and responsibilities that the Fed has today as being part of living will, being part of stress tests, being part of a really robust regulatory agency. Remember, they're just as much a regulator as they are a monetary policy organization. You know, I don't think you need to be an economist. Also, if you've ever been inside the New York Fed or the Washington Fed, you will find no shortage of economists yeah. in this building. There are hundreds of economists in there, if not thousands of economists. Yeah. I used to be on the Treasury Borrowing Committee many, many um, years ago, uh -huh. and every time you went to the Fed, all you got to do is meet 100 new economists <laughs> who wanted to come in and present their newest finding on something having to do with the yield curve. So I'm not worried that Jerome Powell or Randy Quarles or any of the new Fed members are not acutely up to, where, up, up to speed on everything going on in the economy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely no shortage of economists. Um, well, so with the Fed, uh, they do have more handcuffs on them uh, since Dodd-Frank in terms of their ability to react to a crisis. Um, now, instead of uh, bailing out a single individual firm, it has to be five. Yep. Uh, the FDIC has restrictions on guaranteeing bank debt. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, just negativity towards the idea of, of bailouts. Do you think that will make the next crisis worse? Whatever shape it, it takes, that they don't have the ability to do what they need to do anymore. So look, I'm not supportive of the restrictions. I, I, I think that the Fed governors, again, um, FDIC, they go through advising consent. They go through a pretty rigorous process. If you don't like who the president nominates, they don't have to get approved. Once you empower them, and, and, and the Fed governors have long terms. So, you know, it's not like they're political. They're 14-year terms. You know, you shouldn't appoint them. And once you appoint them and, and, and you're really running the central bank, I don't think you should handcuff them. If we've got one financial institution that we think is that systemic, that needs help, don't go force them to put, find four other institutions to put a dollar into just so they can bail out the one that needs help. It doesn't make sense to me. Why would you do that to something? It's not the way you or I would run a business. We Oh, we have to deal with five customers. This customer really needs our help. Let's find four of the customers that don't really need our help, but give them the product for free. 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's not the way you would run a business. It's not the way you would run an agency. Again, it was the government basically had some good fundamental ideas, but just overreached in trying to, you know, step too far over the line. Yeah. Well, do you think there's hope, though, for Congress to reverse that, given the mood there uh, about bailouts? You know, and I, 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 again, as we all remember, and, and I won't criticize because having lived through a year of getting a, a bill passed, I know how difficult it is, but Dodd-Frank was well over 2,000 pages, done in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve, jammed through, partisan lines, sounds familiar by the way, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't have amnesia, yeah. um, so that, down in the middle of the night. You're talking about the text, because yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, so partisan <laughs> lines, no one got to read it, mm -hmm. um, no one actually knew what was in there, um, and you would, you would assume that they would come back to it and, real, and recognize it. So look, one of the things we did this year is we started in the House, and, and, and Chairman Henserling did the Choice Act, which was a modernization of a lot of things at Dodd-Frank. Henserling, uh, I'm sorry, um, Crapo, to his credit, with the support of over 10 Democrats, got to modernize banking regulations. So we got well over 60 votes in the Senate. So we got a, a, as close to a bipartisan bill as you're going to get to take out a lot of the bad parts of Dodd-Frank, to let the community banks out, let the regional banks out, and let them go to a very tiered regula regulatory environment. And we got a lot of Democratic support on that, whether it was Heidi Heitkamp or Tester or Warner or, or Manchin. We got a lot of support from the Democratic side to say, hey, look, we've gone too far. Let's fix this. Yeah. Well, one person who wasn't supportive of the bill, and I don't know would be supportive of any, uh, that would go along those lines was uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, so you met with her. My best friend. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You guys are BFF. My BFF. Uh, <laughs> you, you guys uh, met uh, while you were in the administration. And you, met, you met many times, yeah. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so supposedly you, you told her you were actually open to uh, her Glass-Steagall proposal. So were you... Is that true, or were you just messing with her? I don't, I don't know if I said I was open to her Glass-Steagall, <laughs> but we had proposed a modern Glass-Steagall in the Trump administration. And you can talk about, we talked about a modern Glass-Steagall. And I said I was very open to a modern Glass-Steagall. So what does that mean? A modern Glass-Steagall is a very highly tiered regulatory environment, where if you're, again, if you're a community bank, and you're a small balance sheet and you take in deposits and give out loan, we're happy to go no-touch regulation. No-touch, you can be state bank regulated if you're state chartered and the federal government doesn't have to touch you. But, and as you go up the level of sophistication, we would up the regulation. At some point, you trip into the federal regulation, you trip into the Fed regulation. And by the way, if you want to be a bank that takes deposits and you want to be a broker dealer, you're going to have pretty severe or very severe high touch regulation. And that to me is a modern Glass-Steagall. But not the, actual separation. One, but well, this is, a, this is a kind of a bogus argument just between me and you, a little <laughs> secret. There are restrictions in the banking code, 23A, 23B, that restrict the use of any deposits to cross the wall into the broker-dealer. You cannot take retail deposits and use them to fund your broker-dealer. So this idea that you have to segregate retail deposits from this risky market-making business, it's already there. 
So it's not like you, there, there, there's, there's two different banks, there's two different legal entities. You can't move the money from legal entity of retail deposits into legal entity of market making. So did you explain this to her or did she just she, kind of assume that you were um, talking about her? I think she taught law at Harvard. I think yeah, yes, she, she shouldn't need it explained. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, uh, so one of the other things, which I'm guessing you won't agree with, um, but curious to get your thoughts, that she has also been uh, talking about is uh, it, partly because of the tax cuts uh, that bank profitability is at record levels. And that shows that Dodd-Frank hasn't really imposed that much pain on Wall Street. And actually, that shows things should be tougher, that the banks can take it. Again, one of the most naive statements I've ever heard. OK. So what do you really think? What do I? No, no. I, I mean, I was kind of nice. That was a nice answer for, for, for oh, me. Okay. All right. So bank profitability measured by total earnings, right? Total earnings. That's how she measures profitability. She forgot that we put so much equity in the banks in the financial crisis that the return on equities are a third of what they were pre-crisis. Shareholders measure return on equity. So you take my dollar of equity, how much return do you get out of it? So look, this may not have been right. This may not have been right, and I'm the first to admit that. But Goldman Sachs was in the 30s to 40% return on equity pre-crisis. They right now work their butt off to get to double digits, to get to 10, 11, 12. So these record earnings, record earnings, are getting up to 10 or 11 or 12%. I think the average bank earnings in the United States are right around single, high single digits. So this massive pull of earnings is single digit ROE in the United States. So again, it's an absolutely absurd, naive statement. And the second part of that is to get to these high single digit ROEs, what do you think the banks did? They charged customers more money for the same services. They didn't leave their pricing unchanged. So if you've got an account or you're getting a loan or you're taking a service from a bank today, you're not paying the same thing you were pre-crisis. So it's naive to think that the customer's not paying for that. So you're not on board. I take it with her well, I'm, arguments. Because that is something I'm that not against her. I'm just giving you reality. The way you measure a performance of management, the way you measure performance of a share is not with, look, which company would you rather own? This is, there's, there's an obvious answer here, okay? <laughs> a, a, a company with $1 of equity that earns $10 or a company with $10 of equity that earns $10? Yeah, okay. Exactly. You'd rather own the first. So she says they're the same. They both had $10 of earnings. Well, so if they, they, they're not the same company, a company with $10 of equity that has $10 of earnings versus a company with $1 of equity that has $10 of earnings, they're not the same company. She thinks they're the same company. Yeah, well, I, I, ROE is not, I think, in the vocab of a lot of <laughs> members of Congress. So. Well, but then they shouldn't be talking about record earnings. Yeah. Well, so last question, and then we'll get to, uh, to Rob. Uh, looking it, by at, the way, ignorance yeah. is not a good defense. Yeah. No, I, well, you, but you well, see I've it had, a lot in D.C. I've had plenty of lawyers that tell me ignorance is not a good defense. Washington is <laughs> full of it, though, unfortunately. Um, so looking back at 10 years after the crisis and seeing the political mood, do you feel like 
Wall Street's image will, will ever recover? Is, is it always going to be the easy political target? Well, you know, you've talked with, with me about, you know, how much banks actually do for the economy, for small businesses, for uh, individuals, but, you know, that message is not quite getting across mm -hmm. to the broader public. So look, there's one industry that has a much worse image than us. Congress. Us? Congress. Congress. No. <laughs> then banks. You say the media. Then banks. Oh, the media. You guys are trying to compete. <laughs> yeah. The media. Okay, I left you out of it. So look, Congress has a worse image. Banks are better. I mean, banks poll better than Congress by, you know, decent margin based on, remember, we're in the world of small numbers, for so a couple percent's a big, a big move because I'm in the world of reality and facts. Um, <laughs> So and you're saying that's different from what you uh, I didn't Washington? say it. Uh, no, but it, but if one's polling at 14 and one's polling at 20, that's a, a wide margin. Sure. It's only seven. I could say it's only seven basis points, or I could say it's 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 40 percent. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, it's 40 percent better. <laughs> and, and, and 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 so um, my view is, it's going to take an enormous amount of time for the reputation of Congress to recover from the financial crisis. And they're not helping themselves as they get more and more partisan. As you talk about the political wave that's come across the country, and a lot of it is a backlash to the to the financial crisis. The banking industry has, and, and, and I don't want to be naive, and I don't want to live with blinders on, because I clearly lived in Washington. I think the banking industry has tried. The banking industry has gotten substantially, substantially better. But they still, they, they continuously have work to do. By the way, a lot of industries have work to do. It's interesting to watch, you know, Washington go after the next industry and the next industry yeah, and the tech next industry. Now is the big target. It's now tech, yeah. right? It's now tech. It seems like it's Washington's favorite pastime is to pick on success. And you think that's the Wall Street's downfall? Is no, no. Look, I, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, look, there's no one that gets a free ride from the financial crisis. No one gets a free ride. Okay. I, 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 I'm not saying that. But I think that Wall Street and the regulatory community has done enormous work to try and enhance the reputation, to try and be part of the recovery, to try and bring jobs back to the country, to try and grow the economy, to try and be part of a turnaround to the best they possibly could. And I think if you came into any banker today in America and said, look, I've got a great idea, they'd listen to you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, You're Gary, welcome. for this chat and you're not done yet I'm not done yeah yet. you're not we have quite a few questions here from, okay. we've had many questions so i'm going to throw them to you as rapid fire as i can gary okay yes, Let's, yes we're on no, the trading maybe, floor. how about this yes yes no maybe no, uh no, no, okay, well you can try that okay who's a better boss donald or lloyd <laughs> <laughs> next question <laughs> whatever happened to infrastructure week oh that's a good one um, you mentioned that, but really, no, like, I did. where are we? I did. We're every week. So, so um, if you, not to plug your competitor, but one of your competitors had a good piece on it this morning. I think that was this morning. Um, where I very much believed in public-private partnership, leveraging the U.S. balance sheet by putting a little bit of equity, U.S. equity capital in, and then letting the private sector leverage it up and selling off a lot of the non-crucial infrastructure in the United States. Um, that met enormous amount of resistance in Washington. Um, your best friend, Senator Warren, would like to just go borrow a trillion <laughs> to a trillion and a half dollars. 
formulaically give it out state by state, and we'll have actually nothing at the end of the period, but she'd like to give out a trillion, trillion and a half dollars and do infrastructure. I don't see a solution. That said, if the Democrats win the House, I will be shocked if the first thing they do, don't do is infrastructure. I think they'll do a trillion dollars, trillion and a half dollars of infrastructure, and the president will sign it. Another trillion dollars of debt. Here we come. Um, what's your level of confidence in the president's ability to manage the imposition of tariffs without hurting the economy? So, so look, this, this deserves a long answer because the president actually has some very fundamentally correct issues on tariffs. What the Chinese have done to us for the last two decades is just wrong. One of our big competitive advantages in the United States is we are a country of, inf of invention. We have invented enormous things that the world uses today. To, to make comparative advantage work, everyone has to pay for the other country's comparative advantage. So if we're not getting paid specifically by the Chinese for what we have invented and the Chinese are just stealing it and knocking it off, the global economy and globalization doesn't work. I agree with that. The president agrees with that. He's trying to figure out how to level the playing field, that we can continue to be great inventors of the world, continue to create products that the world wants, but make sure we get paid for them. And he's willing to sell the Chinese more energy products, willing to sell the Chinese more agricultural products, willing to buy more things from the Chinese, as long as they're willing to pay for our technology and as long as they're willing to give U.S. companies access and they're not going to steal things from us. So the ultimate goal we agree upon, and, and, and that's the ultimate question. And, and the question is, how do you get from here to that ultimate goal? And there's no path of no resistance to get there because everyone else has tried the path of no resistance. And so the president is trying what many in this room, and, and even myself, might can consider a very unpredictable path of negotiation to try and get the Chinese to pay for the intellectual property, the technology that they've been using from us. So one to 10, you're a five. Uh, I'm always a five. <laughs> Why not? Um, Sounds good. Except at home, I'm a zero. <laughs> uh, do you have any regrets about the uh, tax cuts effect on the federal budget? Oh, of course I have regrets. I mean, I would, have I would have wished we could have done it and created a surplus. I mean, look, it, it, I believe in Peter Pan and, and Santa Claus and Tooth Fairy, too. But, you know, no, it's like I wish we could have cut so many deductions out that we could have got ourselves globally competitive and not needed the trillion and a half dollars of deficit. I wish. It's just unrealistic. I mean, it's just unrealistic. We needed 235 and we needed 51. Even with reconciliation instructions, we needed 51 votes in the Senate. We, once you start touching any one of those little silos, it's one, two, or three votes, and one, two, or three votes add up very, very quickly. So you're the one thing Washington teaches you and teaches you very quickly, and it's an important lesson, is don't let perfection get in the way of a victory. So you know, you gotta take your victories in Washington. Um, Someone wrote in for some investment advice. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're given three stocks. You must buy more of one, short one, and hold the other. The three stocks are Facebook, JP Morgan, and SoftBank. Go. What? 
I don't think I'm a registered. I don't think I'm registered anymore. I think it's illegal for me to give investment advice. Well, no, okay. Not, you're not up. You have, I, I, I think my registration got killed when I went to the White House. Ari, what do you think? I can't give investment advice? <laughs> it's your civic duty. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I don't even know who those companies are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got another one. So you talked a bit about Wall Street's, uh, per, the perception of Wall Street in Washington and the, in the country. Yeah. Do, you, do you think someone, do you think a Wall Street figure, um, say one who led a bank uh, through the, before the crisis and through okay, the keep crisis. Okay, keep going, keep going, I got do it, you I think, got it. Do, do you think Jamie would make a good president and could he win? Yeah, I, I, think, I think Jamie would make a phenomenal president. I think Jamie would be a spectacular president. I, I, look, after having seen the inside of the Oval Office and worked inside there for hours upon hours a day. It's, in many respects, very similar to running a complex multinational global farm. It really is. I mean, the problems are different. The magnitude of the, the, the problems are different. The impact is different. But it's, Jamie would be a phenomenal president. Last question. What, you're a young guy. What are you going to do next? Well, I thought I was going to spend more and more time with my wife and kids. My kids are in their 20s, and they're all girls. I quickly realized they've had enough of me already after the summer. <laughs> so I'm uh, looking at some new and interesting, very, very interesting opportunities. There's no shortage of opportunity in the United States. That's the, the most encouraging thing I can say is the economy's in great shape. The economy's booming. There's an enormous amount of capital. GDP is growing. We're finally getting wage growth. And there's an enormous amount of opportunity in the United States. And I think you have to give... The tax, the tax law, and you have to give some of the deregulation credit for that. And so, you know, I'm pretty excited about the opportunities out there. Okay. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. Thank you all for coming. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of our 10 Years After podcast series. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, please subscribe and follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else that you satisfy your audio cravings. And be sure to check us out at breakingviews.com.